0: So Nehemiah chapter 2, I'm going to be talking to you this morning about the power of your story. The power of your story. And I know some of you may be looking at your life and maybe some of you feel like you have a a, a story of God's power in your life, of God's goodness and God's glory in your life. And then there's some sitting there, I don't really know what my story may be. And and, and I, I struggle to figure those things out. I pray this morning that as we go through this, that you're going to be able to see, if nothing else, at least God's salvation story in your life, which is in and of itself a miracle. You do understand that, right? And so I pray that when you see what God does through Nehemiah and how he uses uh, Nehemiah's story of God's work in his life, I pray that you're going to be able to see the power of your story And I'm going to pray that that you'll see that God gave you that story for the purpose of retelling it to everybody around you, to your family, to your kids, to to your workmates, whoever you're around. God put you in a place and worked in your life so that you had a story to tell the world about God's goodness and about God's glory in your life. If you got an outline this morning, you notice it says that all creation was created to display God's glory. Now, I want to make sure that you all have an understanding of what I mean when I talk about God's glory. Because sometimes we talk about that and it's kind of vague. We don't really have a good understanding of what is God's glory. What does it mean to to display God's glory? Well, God's glory, simply put, is this right here. It is all of God's holiness... All of God's attributes that make Him who He is put on display to be seen in any way. So like for instance, the moon and the stars, that's God's glory. Why? Because it puts on display God's power, God's majesty, God's greatness. Um, the, the oceans and the mountains as you heard me say so many times. That's God's glory. Because it puts on display God's power and His greatness. Uh, Christ on the cross is God's glory. Why? Because it puts on display God's love and God's mercy and God's grace. Your salvation in your life is, is God's glory. Because it puts on display God's love and God's long-suffering and God's patience. So... Anything that in creation, no matter what it is, that is on display and shows you God's attributes in any way, that is God's glory. And so all creation was created to display this. Why do we do that? Well, can you imagine being the most magnificent being that there is, the most beautiful being that there is, The most loving, the most long suffering, the most gentle, the most patient, the most powerful, the most. Can you imagine being the greatest of all beings and yet being invisible? And can you imagine being that and no one being able to celebrate that with you? You know, one of the things, whenever, whenever you see something amazing in your life, you see something amazing in the sky or you see a, a great sunset or you see a, a dolphin jumping out into the ocean and you're sitting on the beach and you're watching that, the first thing you want to do is look around to see who can I share that with, right? You're looking around to find somebody to go, look, 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 did you see that? And do you know why you do that? Because glory is meant to be shared. The 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 joy in the glory is meant to be something that you and I are able to share with one another. Look at how great this is. And look, this is the reason why you take pictures and post them all over Facebook. You want everybody in the world to see what you recognize as glory if it's your children, if it's your, uh, your vacation and all the sights that you saw, it is never complete until you're able to share it with someone else. If there is no one there for you to share it with, you are going to fall so short in fully enjoying that the way that it's meant to be enjoyed. And what we have here is God being the most beautiful, the most magnificent, the most glorious being that there is, and yet He's invisible. So how do we solve that? Well, God creates. And then He creates beings and He creates people to be able to see His glory and to be able to celebrate His glory. If you want evidence of that, go back to Isaiah chapter 6. You don't have to turn there right now. But the angels are surrounding God's throne and they're making this statement. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now you would expect at this point for them to stop and say, The whole earth is full of His holiness because they're declaring how holy He is. And let me define that for just a minute. Holiness is simply to be completely set apart. That means that there is nothing and no one like this. It is specific for its purpose and it is in a league and in a category all by itself and it's not meant for anything else. And so whenever they looked at God, what they say to God is, God, you are in a category all by yourself. Who is like you? Who who has the power you have, the majesty, the love, the greatness you have? And at His throne, they look at God and they say, you are holy. And then they look at earth, which is His creation, right? And they say, The whole earth is full of your glory. Why? Because His glory is all of His holiness. Everything that makes Him in a category by Himself, His glory is when God puts that on display in any way. And so whenever God created the angels, the whole point was for them to look at the glory of God and be able to look at Him and be able to say, there is nothing and no one like you. The whole point of all of creation is to lead each and every one of us to look back at God and say, you are holy and you alone are holy. You are worthy of worship and you alone are worthy of worship. And this is what everything was created to do, especially you and I. Now unfortunately, y'all know the story, we sinned and fell short of what? All have sinned and fell short of? So again, there is the ultimate failure in man. Instead of enjoying all of His creation and it leading us back to who He is, to worship Him, to to follow Him, to serve Him, instead of that, we decided that we just wanted to rob Him of all that He is and we want it all for ourselves. God, we want Your glory And this is where our sinful heart comes from, is a heart that refuses to give God what He is due and what He is absolutely worthy of. And so, in Jesus Christ, I want you to understand that we are called back to that purpose. In Jesus Christ, now we are being restored so that in Jesus, now we can continue to look back at God through things like the Lord's Supper and through the personal testimonies in our life, and we're able to give God worship and praise for His glory, for His love, for His sacrifice, for His mercy, for His grace, for all of who He is. This is what we are called back to in Jesus. And the Bible tells us whatever you do as a Christian, whether you eat, whether you drink, no matter what you do, we do it to what? Do it to the glory of God. We do it to make sure we demonstrate His goodness in everything that we do. And this includes trials of suffering in our life, through trials of suffering in our life, we demonstrate the strength of God. Why? Because we lean on Him, we trust in Him, we believe on Him, and that faith and that strength that He gives us carries us through so that in our weakness, He is shown as strong. And so what we get in this is that everything in our life is meant to demonstrate the glory of God. And in Christ, and what we learn from Christ, That's what happens in our life. Any answered prayers that we have, God answers for His glory. Yes, God loves you. Yes, God wants to give you good things. His love for you is so great that He gave His only begotten Son. But at the center of God's purpose is not you. At the center of God's purpose is to demonstrate His glory. And so this is why he answers prayers for us. It's so that we in turn come back and give him glory. And I could give you scriptures to do that, but I got to get to the lesson. And so basically, everything that we do, everything that happens to us in this life, whether good, whether bad, it is always so that through faith in God that we demonstrate God's holiness and give Him glory for everything that He has done. And this is His power in in prayers, His strength in times when anyone else would have quit This is the only reason why it's so important that you continue trusting God through your trials. We never lose hope. We always have hope. No matter how bad it gets. No matter what God gives or no matter what God takes away, we bless the name of God. And when we do that, we demonstrate the strength of God. We demonstrate the power of God, the glory of God in so many different ways. And so... This is the reason why I say this morning all of your stories and all of your testimonies of God's work in your life is so important no matter whether it just begins with your salvation story or it goes to an answered prayer that God has done in your life or it goes to a trial that God saw you through and he, through His strength He got you from one side to the other or no matter what kind of work God has done in your life, it is important that you understand God is giving you stories to tell. And there is power in your story, as we're going to learn from Nehemiah this morning. Last week I told you a story. It was a story about a woman, a missionary to the Congo named Helen Roosevelt, And a very short version of that story is just simply, she was trying to save a mother of a two-year-old girl that was actually having a newborn, and the baby was being born premature. And again, I'm giving you a short version, All right, so we're going to go through it very quickly. But the mother ends up dying. She couldn't save her and the two-year-old girl goes to the orphanage, and then the newborn baby is going to die because it's premature. If they're not, They don't have electricity in the Congo, and so she had no way to be able to keep this baby warm. Normally in the hospital, they put them in an incubator. They don't have incubators in the Congo at this time. This was the 60s, all right? And then... She takes and she gets these water bottles and she fills them or a water bottle with hot water. She was going to put it around some blankets and some cotton to be able to help keep the baby warm to save the baby's life and the last water bottle busts. And again, long story short, she goes back to the orphanage the next day. Uh, She tasks another nurse to build a fire and to keep the baby between her and the fire to save the baby's life. And so ultimately the baby makes it through the night, but they still don't know how long the baby's going to be able to make it. So she tells the orphanage, she says, listen, we need to pray for this two-year-old girl because her mother has died, as she's sad. And we need to pray for the newborn baby because the newborn baby is probably not going to make it. And she told them the story. She said the hot water bottle busted and it's probably not a chance that we're going to find another one. And so long story short, a little 10-year-old orphan girl steps up and she, she starts praying because the woman had asked her to pray. And she starts praying just out of the blue. And she prays and she prays specifically. She said, God, we need a hot water bottle. And we need it today, not tomorrow. Tomorrow will be too late. And Ms. Helen says in her testimony that as she heard that prayer that, that uh, she thought, my, I can't even say amen to how bold this is. And she was almost offended at the little girl's prayer. And she said that the little girl kept praying. And not only that, God, but when you send the water bottle, send a doll so that the little two-year-old girl will know that you still love her. Long story short, again, a package comes. The first package she had ever received in the Congo, it came that day and landed on her front porch. And she was so excited about it, she didn't know what was in it. But she asked the orphan girls to come with her to help her open it so they could see what the church and the states had sent them because she knew it was going to be soaps and supplies and things. And she said when she opened the box, she was digging in and she was just going to pull out one item at a time. And she reached down in the box and she grabbed, she says, there's no way. And she pulls it out and there's a hot water bottle. And she said, the little girl looked back and she said, Look again, look again, because if he sent the hot water bottle, you know he sent the baby doll too. And sure enough, she reached her hand down in the bottom of that box and she pulls out a baby doll. And what's so amazing about this is it took five months to get a package from the United States to the Congo. So somewhere... In that amount of time of five months, God had already been preparing a church and a group of people somewhere to already be ready to provide this need and answer this specific prayer that was being prayed by this 10-year-old girl. And Ms. Helen says she was so convicted that in her heart, she thought it was too much to ask God to send a water bottle. She thought it was impossible that a water bottle could arrive there by that day. And she was actually offended at the young girl's prayer and I see myself sometimes and I think to myself, Kevin, that's the problem with you too. And this is the reason why you don't have many stories to tell of God's power in your life. Is because you don't when you do pray, it's not persistent prayer. It's not prayer that keeps coming back to God and keeps coming back to God and keeps beating on God's door. God, I need this and I know You can do it. And we keep coming back and keep coming back. And again, I'm not telling you that God is always going to do that because we know sometimes God gives and sometimes God takes away. We know that. But I also know this, that if you don't keep praying like that 10-year-old girl, You are never going to experience the power of God and there won't be any prayers answered. You know how I know? Because God's Word tells me you have not because you ask not. And so I truly believe that we have to understand that when we tell these stories, it's meant to move us. And when I told these stories, just that story at the end of the sermon last week, I had so many people text me or call me this week and some of the people, they would say things like, They would say that you don't know how much that story encouraged me to keep enduring suffering for Christ and to keep just uh, sacrificing everything for Him. And he said, You don't, another one said, You don't know how much that convicted me to pray more persistent and to pray more specific and to quit being so shallow in my faith and not believing that anything is possible for God. God can do anything He wants to do. And others said that they were just convicted of such small and, 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 and such faithless prayers, which again was my story when I, heard, when I heard that story. But no matter how this story affected, one thing I know for sure, certain is Helen Roosevelt's story that happened in 1960 that is still being told today. Is still affecting people and it's still moving people to put their faith and their trust in an Almighty God, who there is nothing too hard for Him to do. So, if that story does that for you, how important and how powerful is your story? I was sitting at the dinner table the night with the Odoms and Casey was telling me his story. I like to sit there and I like to listen to people's story. I usually ask them, "Tell me about your salvation." You know, tell me about when God uh, saved you, and tell me about what your experience with God opening your eyes and and giving you a new life. And and as they shared their stories with me, I was so encouraged by their story. Casey's story of just how God put this person in His path to preach the gospel to him, and and through the Holy Spirit opened his eyes, and how God just completely changed his life. And as he walked through and talked about. The, all the changes that God made and the, the, the things God taught him and the, uh, the love that God placed in his heart. And then when I heard Terabeth and them talk about her, uh, her faith and learning to trust God through the struggles and through the difficulties and, and how they have grown in their faith. And I just sit there and I was so encouraged as I listened to their story. And it really made me want to be a better pastor when I listened to the way that, um, that Casey described the man that just helped him and come along beside of him and walked beside of him and encouraged him and, and helped him grow. And, and I was just so encouraged and so inspired by the story. And it made me want to increase in my faith and actually get closer to God. And your story is no different. When God gives you a story, it's not meant for you to just take that story and keep it to yourself. It's meant when God does a work in your life, I don't care what it is, it's always for the glory of God and it's always for you to tell your story. But in order to have a story to tell, there has to be a heart that seeks God to move in your life, right? And so this is the point that I want to get to this morning. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1 through 9. Let's go through the outline. We're going to look at Nehemiah's story first. I'll go through it quickly because I want to finish this this morning. Read along with me. It says, in the month of Nisan. Now what's important here is to understand that Nehemiah started praying somewhere around November, December in our calendar year. Nehemiah is still praying persistently. Day and night he's praying with everything in his heart that God will let this king find favor in Nehemiah's eyes, or vice versa, I should say, that Nehemiah could find favor in the king's eyes. He knows that if he asks this king for the wrong thing and offends this king in any way, it means his life. And so he is seeking God with everything in him for something that almost seems impossible for somebody like him. And so he's praying about it for until here, the month of Nisan would be our March and April. So somewhere around four to five months, Nehemiah is praying day and night, and he's not stopping his prayer. He's seeking God for what's in his heart. Specifically, God, give me favor with this king for the burden that is on my heart. This happened in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. And again, that just gives us a timeline here. And it was when wine was before him. Now this is important because Nehemiah is the cupbearer. So Nehemiah's time has come to be able to be in the presence of the king. Because in this day and time, you can't just go into the presence of the king just any old time. No, you have to be invited to come into the presence of the king. Nehemiah's time to be invited to come into his presence is happening. As it has happened probably every day since he's been praying. But God hasn't answered His prayer yet. So it says here at the end of verse 1, Nehemiah says, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in His presence. There again, it was also a punishable offense to be killed if you were sad in the presence of the king. I'm telling you, y'all don't understand what kind of freedom we have in this world today. Y'all don't understand what it means to live in the kind of uh, United States that we live in. But here he says, I had never been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. In other words, the king is sounding like he's not going to have much mercy. You see that? Nehemiah is this close to death at this point. But then, look what, and here's how you know it. Look what he says next in the verse 2. Then I was what? Very much afraid. Nehemiah shook because he knew that this being sad in the presence of the king and him knowing that it's not because he's sick, oh, this is dangerous. But then look what happens in verse 3. Nehemiah gets boldness. Nehemiah gets courage. I said to the king, let the king live forever. In other words, I'm not trying to dishonor you, king. I'm not. I give you the honor you deserve. You're the king God has put in place. He has put me here to serve you, and I give you the honor you deserve. And then he says, But why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you asking me? So here we see the first point where God begins to answer Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah's story begins. God has provided him the opportunity. Nehemiah's probably thinking, you know what Nehemiah could have done? Nehemiah could have said, I'm not sad king. Everything is just right. And Nehemiah could have tried to backpedal his way out of this and try to save his life. And instead, he says, God, I've been praying for this. God, this is the moment. God, I'm taking courage and I'm going all in with my life on this. And he does go all in with his life. And he says, I'm asking you this. But before he does that, look at the end of verse 4. So I prayed to the God of heaven. So here, Nehemiah's getting one last prayer in. (laughs) One last prayer. He's been praying for four or five months, but before he speaks, just very quickly, in the back of his head, probably he says, God, if there was ever a time I needed you, it's now. Grant me the desire of my heart. And look what happens next in verse 5. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you would send me to Judah to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, Now listen, Nehemiah could have stopped right then. You ever heard of stopping while you're ahead? Right. Nehemiah is already ahead. The king has just granted What Nehemiah has been asking for, to give him favor so that he can go back and build this kingdom because the city and the people lie in disgrace. And what Nehemiah was concerned about was the glory of God. He wants the people to look at the city of God and see walls and a temple and people being blessed. And yet when he gets there, that's not what he sees. And so he wants God's glory to, so that he can go back and build this wall for the glory of God. But then, keep going with me, he could have stopped while he was dead, but he didn't. In verse 7 he says, And if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. So now he's asking for official letters from the king that says this person is not just on Jewish business, this person is on the king of Persia's official business. Now that's a lot to ask for the king that his kingdom is not about helping other kingdoms get built up. His kingdom is about just his glory and his own throne. But nevertheless, he asked for it. And then in verse 8, And give me a letter to Asaph. And here's who Asaph is. The keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I should occupy. Man, Nehemiah has literally lost his mind. And he has went all in And he's asked God for everything that he could possibly need in this. King, I want you to first have favor on me and let me go back home and build the kingdom that your people destroyed. King, I want you to not only do that, but give me letters saying that it's your business so that anybody that asks, they're defying you if they defy me. And then not only that, but would you ask the king of your forest, the keeper of your forest, to make sure that he supplies me with all the timber to build doors to the temple, to build gates to the city wall, to build the city wall itself, and to even build the house that I'm going to occupy. And then I want you to notice what happens here at the end of verse 9. And the king granted me what I asked for for the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah's got a story to tell, don't he? And so in verse 9, look what he says. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. Not only did the king give him letters, Not only did the king give him everything he asked for, he even gave him things that he didn't ask for. He even sent armies and horsemen with him along the way so that God's purpose is going to be revealed. Now listen, if there was ever a story to tell for Nehemiah to tell, he got a story, don't he? And so next I want you to look at Nehemiah's opposition in verse 10. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Now here's the first thing that we learn from God answering prayers, especially when it has to do with ministry. Don't think for one second that the first thing you're going to face is not going to be opposition when you get there. Yes, God answered all of his prayers. God gave him everything. But do you think the devil is going to sit back and just not do anything? No. The devil steps up here and the people of this land, uh, the, the Samaritans basically is who they were. This is Sambalat, He's the governor of Samaria and this is his servant. And they don't like the fact that um, God's sending someone over here or the king of Persia is sending someone over here to help the people of Judah, the remnant that God has called back to serve him there. And so they step up and they're going to begin to do everything they can to put opposition in the way. And this is the way it goes when you're trying to minister to the people of God. It displeases the devil and his people that anybody has a desire to do anything for the welfare of of God and His people. And so he can't stand that. He's got to set some opposition in a way. Number three, Nehemiah's motivation. <clears throat> Let's read, um, skip down with me. Nehemiah inspects the whole thing. He gets a plan together. But then in verse 17, look what Nehemiah does. Then I said to them, You see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, come. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Here's the thing. They had done become, the people of God had done become so discouraged and so defeated they felt. And they felt like that there was no power. They felt like that the enemy was too strong around them. They felt like that there's really not anything that we can do to the point that they had probably done quit again. And if you were in with me through Ezra, you remember that this happened. They come in, they go at it strong, opposition comes in, and they feel defeated. Come on, somebody already said amen. I've been there, Pastor. And then it takes the Word of God coming to you, and God sends people like Haggai and Zechariah, and He sends preachers of God's Word, and they come in, and they preach the Word, and they restore hope. And then they get back to the work and they work and they work and they get another task completed and then whenever they start something else opposition comes in again and then they feel defeated again. And then it takes the Word of God coming back and actually um, preaching to them and encouraging them. And so one of the things that we see happens right here is the people of God have gotten discouraged. They've laid down. They've quit. The walls are just going to be like they are. We're not going to go any further. We're not going to keep trying to build the people of God and the church of God and the temple of God. You know what? We've gone as far as we can go and we've kind of got stagnant. Anybody ever been there? Look what happens in verse 18 here's how Nehemiah solves the problem and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken and they said here's their response let us rise up and build the power of your story the power of your story, of God's work in your life, of God's prayers that He answered specifically for you, and sometimes not only did He answer it, but He went above and beyond all you could have ever imagined that He would do. The power of God's miracle in taking you and who you used to be as a sinner and making you a completely different person And let me tell you something, if you have ever been born again, born of the Spirit of God, you know what I'm talking about. You know who you were and you know what God did for you and you know the changes that God has made in your life and how He has turned you into a completely different person today. Nothing like you would have ever imagined. And that story is so powerful for someone else in their life so that when Nehemiah tells this story, not only first off is Nehemiah motivated by his own story, I mean, Nehemiah got some motivation. And let me tell you something. He gets on them horses and he makes that journey all the way to the promised land. He gets a plan together. He rallies the people. He tells them the story that God of what God did in his life. And he motivates them and encourages them. And all of a sudden, we got a group of people ready to go to work because of the story of God and His goodness. And so, when you think about Everything that God gives us. When you think about things like, for instance, let's talk about um, uh, the Passover. The whole purpose of the Passover was so that year after year, when they did this service, they would tell the story over and over again. For instance, it was a memorial. Look with me at Exodus chapter 12, verse 14, real quick. Exodus chapter 12, verse 14. Look at what this says. This day shall be for you a memorial day. He's talking about the Passover day. talking about year after year. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. In other words, every year on this day you shall tell the story of how I delivered you and how I redeemed you and how I provided for you and you crossed the Red Sea and you went into the wilderness. And then after... A certain amount of time, He gave them another feast to celebrate as a memorial and as a celebration. That was the Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Booths was to tell the story of how they dwelt in booths in the wilderness. But God provided them with shelter. And God gave them manna from heaven. And God gave them quail to eat. And God gave them water from the rock. And the whole point of every celebration that the Jews did is to give them a way to tell the story over and over and over again of God's power, of God's goodness, of God's salvation. And so it's a memorial. And why would you need a memorial? You know, here's the thing about it. Do some of you remember the first time, or I say the first time, the day that you were saved? The day that God saved your soul. You wanted to tell everybody. You wanted everybody to know your story. You wanted everybody to know the goodness of God. But why is it that after some time, that, that, that same fire is not there? And as a matter of fact, after some time, you can't even remember the last time you actually told someone your story. You actually told somebody about the changes that God is making in your life. The problem is we are forgetful people. You know, in uh, Joshua chapter 4, they were going to go over into the promised land, but there was an obstacle in the way. You remember what that was? The Jordan River. The Jordan River was overflowing its banks, and the Bible tells us in Joshua 4 that it was overflowing its banks. They were standing opposite Jericho, and that God parted the waters and He pushed it back up into a heap as far back as the city of Adam. Now why is that important? Because God gives us two markers to be able to look at on a map and be able to see that what happened there is an overflowing river. God took and pushed it back opposite Jericho all the way back to the city of Adam. Now if you were to take a map, and you can do it today if you want to, and you were to find where Jericho was and you were to find where Adam was, you would learn that it was about 17 miles from Jericho to the city of Adam. And the Bible tells us that God made the water stand in a heap from Jericho to Adam. Picture this in your mind. From Corner Market here at the bypass in town, from that red light to the first red light in Lawrenceburg is about 17 miles So picture if Highway 64 was a river that was overflowing its banks and God made this thing stand up in a heap from Lawrenceburg all the way back to Corner Market. And you walked across on dry land. Do you think you'd ever forget it? You wouldn't think so. But do you know what happened? Joshua tells them, pick out 12 stones when you come across. And you stack them up so that in the time to come, when you come by this place again and your children see these stones, they're going to ask you, what do you mean by these stones? And that is when you're going to tell them of the mighty hand of God and how He delivered you from the wilderness into the promised land by a strong hand and an outstretched arm. And you're going to tell the story of God's power and God's might. Again, you wouldn't think we'd ever forget things like that, but the fact of the matter is we do. And so we need memorials. And that's the reason why we do things like the Lord's Supper. God has given us this as a memorial so that you always look back and remember what God did for you and how God saved you from an eternal wrath in a devil's hell, in a lake of fire that never quits burning. And God saved you from that through His Son's broken body and His Son's shed blood. And when we do that, we tell our story. His body was broken for me. See, when we take the Lord's Supper, we don't tell the story and say His body was broken for the world. That's not what we do when we take the Lord's Supper. When we take the Lord's Supper, we say His body was broken for me. For me. And His blood is God's new covenant with me. And as often as I do this, I proclaim His story and my faith in it until the day that He comes again. And so it is a memorial. It is also a celebration. Remember He said this is a feast to the Lord. You know what a feast was for, right? A feast was for celebrating. And so it's a memorial to remember. But our story is also a celebration. We ought to be able to celebrate when we tell our story. When Casey was telling his story the other night, he was happy about the things that God had done in his life. He wants to share it with people. And I know you're the same way if you're saved. If you know what God has done in your life, you want people to know what God has done for you. You want to share that with others. Another thing, your story is for teaching faith to others. Look at Exodus chapter 12 again, verse 26 and 27. Exodus 12, verse 26 and 27. Look at what this says. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? So we're not talking about the stones here. We're talking about the Passover again, okay? So again, every story that God gives you, whenever you tell that story or when you do things to demonstrate that story, the hope is that somebody is going to ask you about your story. When you partake of this Lord's Supper, the hope is that there's going to be some kid that's going to say, Is that the blood of Jesus? Ooh. And then it gives you an opportunity. To share your story the hope is is that when someone sees the change in your life and when somebody sees that you're not who you used to be that it's going to make somebody look at you and go you know there's something different about you what happened to you what's going on and it gives you a chance to tell your story your story is an opportunity to be able to teach faith to others so that when they ask it says here again in exodus chapter 12 verse 26 He says, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this sacrifice? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For He passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians, but He spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and they worshiped because of the story. Your story is what God may use to open the eyes of another. Look at Acts chapter 26 verse 28 and 29. I'm coming to a close, I promise. I'm not going to break that promise. Acts 26. Look with me at verse 28 and 29. This is Paul in front of King Agrippa. Paul is fighting for his life here. And as he's fighting for his life, he has to tell his story to the king of the Jews. And that's exactly what he does He stands up and he tells his story about what God did for him, about his road to Damascus and how he was on his way to kill Christians. And then Jesus stopped him and opened his eyes and he showed him who he was and he turned him back to a man that prayed for him and that ministered to him and discipled him. And and he tells his story to the point that look at what Agrippa says to Paul in Acts 26 verse 28. This is what Agrippa says to Paul and agrippa said to paul in a short time you would persuade me to be a christian paul and paul said whether a short or a long time i would to god that not only you but all who hear me this day might become such as i am except for these chains in other words when paul told his story his heart was that it was going to open the eyes of someone else. Your story is all... You know, I hear people all the time say, I'm just kind of embarrassed to to share the gospel with people because I don't really know enough and my knowledge is not there. Can I ask you at least this much? Do you know what he did for you? Paul didn't share any deep theology with King Agrippa. The only thing he shared is how Jesus saved his life. Paul knew his story, and Paul told his story. And let me tell you something, if you have been saved, if you have been born again, if God has took you from your darkness of sin and led you to follow Jesus by faith and He is changing you, you have a story. And if you don't know nothing else, you know your story. And there is power in your story to open the eyes to the point that King Agrippa literally looks at Paul and says, Paul, you almost persuade me. In other words, I'm this close, Paul. Paul said, oh, I would to God that not only you, but everybody that just heard this story would become just like I am except for the chains I'm in. I don't want that for you. But I want you to be saved. And then finally, your story is for encouraging the downcast to keep trusting the Lord. And I take you back to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. And notice what he does here. I'll go back there. This is the last verse. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. Look at what Nehemiah's story does for these people. Then I said. You see the trouble we're in. He's talking to downcast people. He's talking to people who have been derided and people who have been mocked and people who they they don't even know if God is even around anymore. And you see how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me and they said... Let us get up. Now, you know where you got to be to get up? It's time to get up. You know how the discouraged and the disheartened got up here? Nehemiah's story. Nehemiah's story of the goodness of God. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. And then if you want to finish it out, the enemy comes back again and jeers at them and mocks them and and makes fun of the work that they're trying to do. And then I'll finish it out with uh, verse 20. He says, Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper. You know how they overcame the, the, the opposition of the enemy? Through the story. They knew what God had done. They knew where God had already brought me. You want to know how I know God's going to bring me to the end? Because He brought me this far. He did this much in my life. And I know if He did this in my life, He ain't going to stop now. There's so much power in your story. And yet, so many times, we either just don't tell our story, or we forget our story, or We just don't seek God to have a story. Nehemiah had a story in closing. Nehemiah had a story because he prayed and because he was persistent in that prayer. Nehemiah didn't just come down in the month of November and December and pray a couple of times and then go, well, it must not be God's will. No, four to five months later, Nehemiah is still praying day and night persistently for the same thing And because of his persistent, specific prayer, he got a story to tell. But do you know what would have happened if Nehemiah had quit praying at four months? He wouldn't have had a story. Nehemiah has a story because he didn't quit knocking on heaven's door until God answered. And this is exactly what Jesus told us to do. He said, seek and you shall what? And knock and what? it shall be opened. And so you have to understand that God calls you to a persistent and specific prayer life or you won't have a story. And this has led me this week to be convicted of it and I've just been getting real specific in my prayers. And I've been praying for the salvation of family members that that I have that I know that as far as as my eyes see, it's impossible for them to come to the Lord just like the world would have saw in me before I came to the Lord too, right? But my prayer has just been getting specific that God would do this and God would do that. And I've just been trying to find ways that I can pray and I can knock on heaven's door and knock day and knock night and day after day and night after night until one day, who knows, because there is nothing too hard for God. You understand that, right? Amen. And so maybe you don't have a story today because you don't have much of a prayer life. And I understand that. Prayer lives are difficult. But if you have something to seek God for, prayer comes pretty easy. Just wait till you're in the darkest time of your life and see how easy it is to pray. Wait until can't nobody do for you what you need done except God and see how your prayer life changes then. We probably pray more like Miss Helen Roosevelt than that 10-year-old orphan girl. Maybe we need to be more bold in our prayers. Maybe we need to be more specific in our prayers. Maybe we need to understand that there's nothing impossible for God. And then I end with this, most of my stories came from the darkest moments in my journey. And I think you would agree with that too. Most of your stories come from the toughest times when the opposition was beating you down and, and you didn't feel like you could get back up. But those are the very times that God's power shines through the most. And I pray that if you're in that moment right now, you understand that if you keep trusting God and you keep seeking God, you fix and have a story to tell, my friend. And that's going to be worth it, I promise you. Your story may be one of personal experience of Him changing you from the inside out. It may be just simply how He opened your eyes to sin and led you to repentance and faith in Christ. It may be a story of God's power and grace to answer a prayer of some kind in your life. It may be saving a soul. It may be healing a sickness. It may be a story of Him providing for you and your family. It may be some great deliverance in your life or when you should have been dead and yet He saved you and gave you another day of life. I don't know what it is, but I'm telling you, you got a story to tell. And if you don't start telling that story to somebody, There's somebody's life that won't be changed. There's somebody discouraged and downtrodden that will stay down because you kept your story to yourself and because you didn't understand the power of your story.